Father, we all go through times, um, we all go through times of uh, intense stress. We go through times where it seems like we're running a marathon and um, quite frankly, we get up and we keep running every day and every day, but that finish line doesn't look any closer than it was six months ago. They keep moving it on us, it seems like. And it doesn't seem like we're making progress. And there are times when it, it seems like you are far away and distant and, and not responding. Uh, it, we have times like that. We have seasons like that. We get weary in well-doing. We wonder why you are um, not delivering and why you are not coming through. Uh, we find ourselves in um, what John Newton referred to as the school of disappointment. And when we're in that school, all we want to do is get out. And um, I was thinking this morning, uh, I was up, I was outside, I had a cup of coffee, and I'm looking at uh, the sky and looking at the sun just starting to shoot its rays across that uh, dark sky and the stars are bright. And it, that phrase just hit me like a ton of bricks. You restore my soul. And we go through seasons like that and we get weary and fatigued and worn out and exhausted and we think it's always gonna be that way and it's not, but it's for a season. And then you start to work and you start to step in and you begin a process of showing yourself strong on our behalf. And when that happens, um, we get our hope back. We, um, our, our doubts start to uh, flee because we're seeing evidence of your good hand once again in our lives. You know what's best for us. We don't. You, you understand our thought from afar. You know how we're wired. You put us together. You hardwired us. You know us so much better than we know ourselves, and you know what we need, and you know how much we can take, and you know our breaking point. And you know there are lessons we need to learn, and when the lessons are being learned, there's a point where you enter us into a new season, and you restore us. A lot of times we think we're finished. Just like an old piece of furniture. It's beat up, it's got nicks, it's got stains on it. So we're, we're, it's just been through it. But someone with a skillful hand can take that and restore it and make it a thing of beauty. Now, you do that in our lives at times. We're better for going through the hard times. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. I would pray tonight for the guys that are in the hard times. I would pray for the guys that are finding themselves just uh, getting up and gutting it out, not with uh, much encouragement. But I pray, Lord, that you will encourage their hearts, that you will let them know that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Your eye is on those who hope and wait for your loving kindness. You've not forgotten them. You will walk them through. Same passage, it says, he restores my soul, says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. You get us through those dark days. We don't avoid them. We don't fly over them. We don't tunnel under them. You just get us through them. So, once again, infuse hope, infuse courage. For each guy tonight, we pray that your spirit would give in this study as we look into your word, 
something that is custom made for them. Something that will calm our hearts and calm our spirits so that we can go home tonight and sleep and rest and get up and see your mercy all over again tomorrow. We're dependent on you for everything. We trust you with our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're teaching Hebrews 11, which I've been doing for a while, and you guys have been coming for a while, you know that there are a number of men and some women that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Faith. It's God's Hall of Fame. The people that are mentioned, and again, if you've been here, we go over this every week as a matter of review, but um, these are Old Testament saints. Uh, they were in circumstances and situations that God had placed them in. And they were walking by faith. Uh, when we walk by faith, we are trusting that God will be faithful to us through the ups and downs of life. We have mountaintop experiences where we're victorious. Those are great. But usually we're not on mountaintops. Usually we're in a valley somewhere. Uh, or we're trekking up. Um, Christian life is a hard life. The Bible tells us it's a hard life. Uh, it's not a bed of roses. It's not heaven on earth. There's a place called heaven. This isn't it. We're on our way there. So as we walk through life, what we want to do is we want to keep one eye on our daily existence, but we want to keep one eye on where we're going. And where we're going is not a bigger house or more money or the economy turning around or this or that. That's just earthly stuff. Now, we gotta, we got to have enough to get by, and the Father knows that, and he'll give us enough to get by. But hopefully, the older we get and the wiser we get, and the more we walk by faith and the more we get into the Scriptures, we realize that really what, what we've spent a lot of our trying time to seek and accumulate, quite frankly, is not all that cotton-picking important. Uh, we're grateful for what we have. But all that God has for us, we will not receive on this earth. We'll get a portion and we'll get what we need. But there are some great days coming for us that um, oftentimes guys will say, I wonder why there's not more in the scripture about heaven. Well, I think there's, there's, there's stuff in there, but quite frankly, we can't assimilate it and we can't get it. We don't have the bandwidth. We're just, it, it, it's, it's like... My son John has got these two English bulldogs, and uh, boy, those suckers are ugly. <laughs> they're just ugly, but they're sweet dogs. They really—I mean—they look like they just eat you in a minute, but they're the sweetest dogs. And uh, one of them is really bright, and the other one is is not. And I know there are times when John will tell them they want to go outside, and he won't let them outside. There are times they want to go over on the other side of that fence to that pasture where those Appaloosas are, and he won't let them go over there. And they'd like to go over there. They don't understand why he wouldn't let them go over there. They can't comprehend it, but he knows things they don't know. One kick from that Appaloosa could send them into uh, doggy orbit. Yeah, they don't know that. Oh, they do now because one of them wandered off over there the other day. And John looked up, and there he was orbiting through midair. And fortunately, he came out okay. God knows what's best for us. And all that he has for us, we will not get on this earth. But we will get what we need. And as we walk through life, we find ourselves in situations that he prepares for us and that he places us in where we are completely dependent on him. Now, we're completely dependent on him for everything, but we forget that. You can't breathe without him. Acts 17, in him we live and move and exist and have our being. You can't breathe without him. We are dependent on him for every breath. We're dependent on him for every step. But there are certain things that are there in life that he has provided for us. Uh, he gives us daily bread. He gives us daily provision. There are things that uh, he has given and they're stable in our lives and we thank him for it. As we go through life, he'll put us in situations 
where things that other people have, He withholds from us. We don't understand why it would be withheld from us. It's, it's not a bad thing to have it. But for some reason, He withholds it from us. And we have to walk by faith in that area. It, it could be a marriage situation. Maybe your other friends, uh, their marriage just seem to be going well. You're just really struggling. Or you've got, um, you've got a health issue. And nobody else has this health issue. You've got it. Nobody else has it. Why do you have it? He puts us in situations where we are aware virtually every moment that we cannot make it and we cannot navigate where we are without him. This is what you call walking by faith. It could be your job. It could be your health. It can be a relationship. It can be all kinds of different things. Be your business. Man, we're hanging on by our fingernails. I don't know if we're going to make it, you know. And if he doesn't come through, you're finished. So what you're doing is you're walking by faith. And to walk by faith means that you are walking through life on a daily basis and you are trusting him and looking to him that he will be faithful to you. Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. If he doesn't come through for you, you're finished. You're finished. And he knows that. But he is the God who delivers. And he is the God who makes a way where there is no way. So you've got all these guys in Hebrews 11, and they had these situations in their lives. Now we have situations in our lives. And everybody's here tonight, everybody looks calm, cool, collected, but there are some churning hearts and some stressed out uh, uh, sleepless uh, nights represented by a lot of guys in here. Why? Because you've got something in your life and you don't know how the heck you're going to get through it. Oh, you're walking by faith, you see. And I would venture to say that every guy in this room has got something in his life where he is walking by faith and if God doesn't come through, well, you don't even want to think about it. There's some stuff in Hebrews 11 that, quite frankly, and there's some, let me put it this way, there are some guys in Hebrews 11, and I will tell you this, this is God's Hall of Fame, because they, how'd they get there? Well, they walked, uh, they, they, are, they are mentioned because, and, and for some of them, we don't have a lot of biographical information, but they are in there because they demonstrated faith in God. Now, what's interesting is, when you start digging into some of these guys, what you find is that for most of them, especially the guys we've been talk, we're going to talk about tonight and the last couple of weeks, um, what you see is, um, is an episode where they will step up to the plate and trust God, but then what you see is... Uh, a horrific lack of consistency. And my question is, why would you put those guys in there? Uh, one of those guys is the guy we're going to look at tonight. His name is Jephthah. In Hebrews 11.32, that's where we've been camped because he mentioned several of these uh, individuals. In Hebrews 11.32, that's kind of our, our base verse here for the last few weeks. What more shall I say? Um, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Those four men are in the book of Judges. Tonight we're on Jephthah. Um, Jephthah is a guy, if it were me, I wouldn't put him in. So, uh, let me ask you something. Baseball Hall of Fame. You put guys in who use steroids? What do you think? Okay. Well, we're going to vote on that right now. <laughs> well, you've got all kinds of different opinions. Um, the old school guys say no. A lot of the younger guys say yeah, because everybody cheats. They've always cheated. Gaylord Perry's in there. Gaylord Perry used to have Vaseline in his dentures. I mean, those guys would put, they had, they had they, and yeah, guys have always, we, we all know that. So you can go back and forth in these debates. Who should be in the Hall of Fame? Should he? No, yeah, okay, you know, okay. 
great. You kind of, I, I would say this, if there's anybody in this list that would elicit more discussion and uh, debate, I would say nobody could beat Jephthah. Uh, one of the commentators says, Jephthah, his life is a mixture of faith and foolishness. This guy was a train wreck. That's all he can tell. And you're going to see this. He was an absolute train wreck. This guy did some stuff that just takes your breath away. Um, we, we need to talk about the book of Judges a little bit because everything has a context. And when you study the scriptures, you've got to understand the context historically of what was going on and where they were. Um, you find Jephthah's, Jephthah's story in, in Hebrews, uh, or rather in Judges chapter 11. Uh, let me give you a couple of descriptions of the book of Judges. It was not a good time in the history of Israel. Uh, one of the writers of the ESV Study Bible says this, in general, the book of Judges does not describe the judges. Now watch this. The judges were the deliverers. It does not describe them as leading Israel in true repentance and in putting away foreign gods. Certainly not in the way that some of the reforming kings would do in the years to come. Uh, you know, after the judges, then you get into the period of the kings. Uh, Samuel, who is the last judge, who is also a priest, will anoint a king over Israel. It'll be Saul. Saul's going to tube. So then he anoints David. And then you got a whole line of kings. And you got all you got chronicles, you got kings, all these stories of these kings. And most of them were guys that got away from God, but you had some godly kings like uh, Hezekiah, like Josiah. Uh, and they brought about reform. And they went after the Lord. I mean, they were all in with the Lord. And they destroyed the idols. And, um, but you don't have that kind of thing going on in Judges. It was such a bad time. It was such a time of, of moral deterioration, and uh, it was such a downward spiral. Uh, but you have some heroes in Judges, and these different men, one of them, Jephthah, at certain points step up and do something heroic. Um, they go on and say, however to say that these heroes had some measure of faith is not to say that they were consistent models of faith. It's important to understand. They would have an episode where they would step up and trust in the living God, but they weren't consistent examples because you go on and look, even Gideon. Gideon stepped up, you know, God gave him all these guys, God cuts him down, he's only got 300 guys, he goes on and he defeats his enemies, and before it's all over, he's got them worshiping idols again. He wasn't a consistent man. What we want to move towards is consistency. What we want to move to is faithfulness. What's required of a steward is that he be found perfect. You know that verse? It's not in the Bible. It's not required of a steward that he be found perfect. It's required of a steward that he be found what? Faithful. Just faithful. Dependable. Reliable. You see, and this is what we want to become. We want to go from immaturity to maturity. Mature men are faithful men. You punch in, you show up. You see, you go through good times in marriage, you go through bad times. Well, you're there in the good and the bad. You're faithful, because you said you'd be faithful. Even when everybody's telling you, bail out. Well, you're faithful. You said better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and health. You're faithful. The, the book of Judges, the more I look at it, the more I, uh, I can't help but, but draw a parallel uh, from the time of the book of Judges to our times. The men of Issachar, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Uh, you know, when David was on the run, all these mighty men came and joined him. That's 1 Chronicles 12. And all these men from the different tribes came, and you get a description of them, and the sons of Benjamin were gifted with the bow and with the sling and the thing about them. Uh, they, uh, they were good with either hand, you know? A lot of guys, when you play basketball, you can tell real fast if a guy can 
a lot of guys can just go with their natural hand. They can only drive right because they're right-handed. They can't go left because they've never developed their left hand. The sons of Benjamin, mentioned in 1 Chronicles 12, with the sling and with the bow were unbelievable. And if they got wounded uh, in one hand, it was no big deal because they were just as good with the other. They were good with the left, they were good with the right. You got all these descriptions. And then you're working through all the different tribes, then you get over there on the right hand of the page in my old Bible, I don't know where it is in my new Bible, but it's 1232 of 1 Chronicles, and it says, and the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times. It doesn't talk about their prowess in battle. It talks about their intelligence spiritually. The men of Issachar, here's what they brought to the table and what they brought to David. They were men who understood the times. You know what that means? They had discernment. They could look around and see spiritually through the fog, and they could see what was going on. Because they were spiritually minded men. They interpreted the events that were going on through the lens of the Word of God. The men of Issachar were men who understood the times. That means they had discernment. And watch this. And they knew what Israel should do. That's vision. So what we want to become is we want to become men of Issachar who understand our times. We need to discern our times because it's not 1955 anymore. A lot of churches get locked in to the good old days, whatever the good old days were for them. I, I, I travel, I'm in a lot of churches around the country. I've been in churches, you walked in, you'd swear it was 1955. They haven't changed the carpet since 55. All the cars in the parking lot are 55 Chevys, Fords, Mercury's, Packards. Were they making Packards? I think they stopped before 55. No, they weren't doing that. Studebakers? Maybe. All the songs, all the dresses, uh, everything, they loved, 55 was good, it was a good year. The problem is, it's not 55 anymore. And so young people walk in there and go, what the heck's going on? What is this, a time warp? You see? Uh, it's not 1955 anymore. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching in London at Westminster Chapel, and he got up and he made this statement. He said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. He said that in 59. We cut off our right arm to get 59 back. <laughs> Would we not? He wouldn't believe where we are today. Wouldn't believe it. <laughs> We're in the book of Judges. The theme of the book of Judges is every man did what was right in his own eyes. They went downhill quick. The, the book prior to um, Judges is Joshua. And uh, Workerson and Boa in their, uh, what is this? Talk Through the Bible. It's a great course. Some of you guys have been to their seminars. Uh, they do a contrast between the book of Joshua, which is the previous book, and the book of Judges. Let me give it to you real quick, because you'll see how quickly the nation of Israel went down the tubes. Uh, in Joshua, the theme is freedom. In Judges, it's bondage. In Joshua, the word is progress. In Judges, it's decline, spiritual decline. In Joshua, you have conquest through belief. In Judges, you have defeat through disbelief. In Joshua 24, it says, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. That's 24.16. In Judges 3, 7, so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Asherahs. In 2431 of Joshua, it says Israel served God. In 2125 of Judges, it says Israel served self. See the pattern? In 2416 of Joshua, it says Israel knew the person of God and they knew the power of God. In 210 of Judges, it says Israel neither knew the person of God nor did they know the power of God. In the book of Joshua, you have objective morality. In Judges, you have subjective morality. It's whatever you think. Well, that may be right for you, but it's, that doesn't mean it's right for me. You ever heard that? That's subjective morality. Don't judge me. Nobody wants to be judged. Nobody. 
Well, guess what? Everyone's going to get judged. Not a thing you can do about it. There's going to be a great white throne judgment. There's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. Now, believers will not be at the great white throne. We'll be at the Bema seat, which is a judgment of rewards. Because our penalty and the sin that was committed by us was paid for by Christ, and he took it upon him, and by his blood we have been redeemed and we've been forgiven. So believers in Christ won't be at the great white throne judgment. We will not pass in the judgment because Jesus took our judgment upon him. So we won't even be at the great white throne judgment. But those who don't want to be judged, they will be judged. Uh, in the book of Joshua, Israel is pressing onward. In Judges, they're spiraling downward. In Joshua, sin is judged. In Judges, sin is tolerated. In Joshua, you see faith of obedience. You see faith and obedience. In Judges, you see lack of both. Uh, it was a bad time in the book of Judges, and this is where we find Jephthah. Uh, God would raise up these different deliverers to deliver them, usually militarily, because he would bring in other nations, other ites, remember the ites, to oppress them because of their, because of their disobedience to the Lord. Uh, I'll read you a little something here so you get the gist of what this book is about. Judges opens with a description of Israel's deterioration, continues with seven cycles of oppression, and deliverance, and concludes with two illustrations of Israel's depravity. Uh, it was not a good time. Uh, earlier, Wilkerson and Boa say this, the recurring result of abandonment from God's law, and this is what happened in the book of Judges. J at the end of his life, Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua dies, and they immediately, they say, oh yeah, we'll serve the Lord, and he dies, and they start serving the idols. And that's why these guys say this, uh, Bo and Wilkerson say, the recurring result of abandonment from God's law, watch this, is corruption from within and oppression from without. And that's the book of Judges. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Isn't this encouraging? Well, I'll tell you what, it sure sounds familiar. Uh, these men were living in they were they were they were living in a time surrounded by idolatry and an anti-God philosophy, and what it was doing is it was it was infiltrating the minds and hearts of God's people, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we're watching this on a daily basis. So it comes out yesterday that the Boy Scouts are reconsidering their stance on homosexuality. Joe Carter had an article in the Gospel Coalition. I, I, there are certain websites I try to check because they have such good content. And one of them is the Gospel Coalition. And uh, let me just summarize this for you. The only reason I'm summarizing this for you is because it illustrates the book of Judges and what was going on with these guys, and we're in the same position. Uh, the Boy Scouts of America is considering changing its long-standing national membership restrictions based on sexual orientation. They've had these restrictions for a long time. Since its inception 103 years ago, the Boy Scouts has excluded both homosexuals and atheists. Uh, spokesman Deron Smith said a change in the policy towards atheists was not being considered. <laughs> and that the Boy Scouts of America continue, continued to view duty to God as one of its basic principles. For how long? The Scouts have been pressured to change the policy by gay rights groups, corporate sponsors, and from the, United, the President of the United States of America. According to Baptist Press, the Boy Scouts released a statement just six months ago, standing by the ban, saying a majority of our membership agrees with the policy, and that the vast majority of the parents of the youth we serve value their rights to address issues, etc., etc. Uh, according to their, you know, religious beliefs. Carter goes on, he says, the scouting oath begins by saying, on my honor I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. And it concludes with a pledge to stay morally straight. We don't even know what that means anymore. 
We've lost our moral compass. In fact, we don't even think there is a compass. We don't even think there's true north anymore, do we? Why? Because every man does what's right in his own eyes. Uh, it's interesting because they talk about the membership of the Boy Scouts. Currently about 70% of all the scouting units are owned and operated by faith-based organizations. Uh, the Mormons have 38,000 units and 420,000 participating boys. Uh, United Methodists, 11,000 units, 371,000 uh, young men. Catholic Church, 8,500 units, 283,000 boys. Southern Baptist, 4,100 units, 109,000 boys. Matthew J. Franck, director of the William E. and Carol G. Simon Center on Religion and the Constitution at the Witherspoon Institute, says that churches will be right to discontinue the affiliation. Listen to his words, they're prophetic. For it will only be a matter of time before the Boy Scouts of America will pronounce itself in favor of same-sex marriage, will adopt instructional materials mandatory in all troops on the compulsory acceptance by all members and leaders of homosexual relations as normal and normative, and will move to silence all dissent from the new orthodoxy by boys, parents, troop leaders, and sponsoring organizations. The Scouts, in short, will rapidly become, from top down, a national pro-gay organization, local control be damned. Of course. Although their constituents uh, in the, in the vast majority, are against the change. But the pressure is so great from the outside. Now, these are the days in which we're living. Um, and see, the, the reason I bring this up is that this explains some of these men in the book of Judges, like Jephthah. Uh, these men, at times, would step up and do heroic acts in the name of the Lord, they would have flashes of faith. Like you'll see a flash of lightning off on the horizon. And then a little bit later, you see another flash. But the flashes of faith were intermittent. There was not a consistency of faith. Why is that? Because they were continually pulled down by the tsunami force of being surrounded by a godless culture. You see, it's very hard to stand on your own two feet. It, it's, it's, Jesus said this. Jesus said, narrow is the gate. Let me back up. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Most people are on the wrong road going the wrong way to the wrong destination. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. It's an eight-lane superhighway. A lot of people on it. Most people on it. But Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life. Few are those who find it. Alan Bloom, in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, which he wrote about 20 years ago, Bloom, uh, a Jewish scholar at University of Chicago, not a Christian, was talking about the changes in America 20 years ago. And in his book, one of the things he said, he said, in America, it used to be that every family had a Bible. And it was on the coffee table or in a prominent place. Perhaps they weren't Christians. Perhaps they never read it. Perhaps they had an inch of dust. But if you pressed them, that Bible represented their value system. There were certain things that were right. There were certain things that were wrong because God said so. Although when they ever opened the book, they didn't know the Lord personally, but grandpa and grandpa knew the Lord. Or great grandpa and great grandma. Somewhere in their family chain, there was spiritual capital from those who had gone before, and they were living off the inheritance. Uh, we see people living off the inheritance of somebody who worked hard and made it big 150 years ago, and now they're just living off the stuff. That can happen spiritually. You don't know the Lord, but you're living off the capital. Those days are gone. Now, We've got subjective morality. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. So when you look at this guy, Jephthah, and let's go ahead and look at him. I mean, you talk about a mix of faith and a mix of foolishness, it's, it's here. 
Judges chapter 11 is where we get his story. Uh, the guy had a, uh, he didn't get a good start in life. You see that right out of the blocks. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. His mother was a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons. So right there you see a problem with the father. You see, not a consistency. Here's a guy living in the time of the judges that knew about the one true God. Was he following him? No. Because he gave himself permission to do what was right in his own eyes. So he's got a wife, he's got a family, he's got sons, but he's also visiting a prostitute, at least on one occasion. Okay. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So this guy, Jephthah, was illegitimate. He paid the price for his father's sin. He bore that stamp of being illegitimate, not because of what he had done, because of what his dad has done, you see. Um, so Jephthah, verse 3, fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, uh, and worthless fellows, guys not worth much, gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And then you start reading in verse 4 that, uh, and once again, we saw this in Judges in the description that Wilkerson and Boa gave, that when you get away from God, what happens is there's corruption within and there's oppression that comes from without. Okay? Uh, because God's hand of blessing is not going to be on those who are running against Him and running against His truth, especially in Romans 2, it says that the Jews were given the very oracles of God. They were given the truth of God. Did they embrace it? No, they rejected it. They went after these false gods. They knew better, but they went ahead and did it. So here come the sons of Ammon, and they are oppressing, once again, the Israelites, and these people get desperate. And in verse 5, when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants. And he basically says, Hey, listen, if I come back, I want to be head from here on out. Not just, not just going in the battle, but I want you to hand it to me. I want to be the leader. And they did. Now here's what's interesting about this. Up until this time, whenever this downward cycle occurs previously in the book of Judges, when they get in trouble and they're oppressed by a different group of ites, the people call out to God in desperation after about 60, 70 years. And what God does is God sends them a deliverer. Here, they are so far gone, they never think about calling to God. They just go find their own leader who looks good to them. That's how far gone they were. They just keep spiraling down. Now, this guy Jephthah, he was a fighter. Uh, and they knew that. That's why they called on him. Um, but as we'll see here, he was a mix of faith and foolishness. Let me make uh, some observations about this guy. And then we'll look at it in the text. Um, Before we do that, go to Psalm 1. Uh, Psalm 1 is not only the first psalm, but it's really, it's, it's, an it's the introduction and sort of sets the theme, if you will, for all 150 psalms. Here's what it says. And it's contrasting the blessed man against the wicked man. Okay? 
How blessed is the man who, watch, watch this, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This is talking about who you follow and who influences you. Uh, I've mentioned to you that in the last few weeks, I am now on Twitter. I, I don't even know what that means, except that there is this world out there called Twitter. And um, so you can post messages, anyway, can't be more than 140 characters. So I'm learning about this. And certain people can sign up to follow you on Twitter and see what you have to say. I mean, you can get anybody from um, Chuck Swindoll to Paris Hilton, which is quite a swing. <laughs> but if someone you know, follows you, then you click on them and it'll say who's following them, and then it'll also say who they follow. That's kind of interesting to see who they follow. And I, 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 and I clicked on that a couple of times to, because I, I thought, oh, I, I, you know, I remember this individual. And then I look at who they're following, and to be honest with you, a couple of times I've been kind of shocked because a lot of the people they're following fit Psalm 1-1. Jesus said, everybody's following somebody. See, when you follow somebody, uh, they're having an influence on you. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never, never perish. What this is saying in Psalm 1 is that the blessed man, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel or under the influence of the wicked. Doesn't mean you don't have acquaintances. It just means they're not influencing you, you're influencing them. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. You're not on the freeway with them, on the broad road, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Watch this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. It's talking about the Word of God. In other words, instead of being influenced by the world and the world system and the world values, you're influenced by the Word of God. That's the difference. Uh, Romans 12, don't be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. How do you renew your mind? By putting the Word of God in your heart. Deuteronomy 32, it is not an idle word for you, it is your life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So those men who are following Christ and who are growing in Christ, and when you see a guy and you, emula and you say, man, that's a man, boy, that's a man who knows the Lord, that's a man I'd like to follow. That's a man I'd like to get to know. That's a man who is modeling Christianity. I'm going to tell you, if there's a man like that, and you were drawn to him because of his uh, faith and because of his life as a Christian man, I am telling you, you're going to find in his life a consistent, uh, a consistent commitment to putting the Word of God in his heart and in his mind, because there's no other way to get there. And the reason you're interested in a guy like that and getting to know a guy like that is the next verse. Because that man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Well, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, uh, in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He will be firmly planted by streams of water. I've, I've mentioned before that village of Bibbury, England. Um, the river, the spring-fed spring river. The river Cone, C-O-L-N. And you track it through the little old village of the wool growers that were built in the 1500s, 1600s. And it's an artesian well. It just comes bubbling out of the ground. And then you can track it around through the little village, and you go around to that castle that was built in, what, the 12th century? And that Norman church that's there that was built in the same century? And the spring-fed river, as you get around to what is now the uh, Bibbury Hotel, this old castle, they have these incredible grounds. 
And that spring-fed river is now about 15, 18 feet across, probably four or five feet deep, and it's just crystal clear spring-fed water. And just to the left of that are these majestic, giant English black oaks, four or five, six hundred years old. You can't put your arms around them. Five men couldn't get your arms around them. They're massive. They're canopies. I, I mean, I don't I can't remember. Brian, you've seen them. I can't remember how tall they are. They're majestic. They're huge. You know the thing about an oak? What you see above the ground is a mere reflection of the root system below the ground. They are firmly planted. Now, that's a picture of a man of God who's firmly planted on the Word of God. See, that's how you fight off the influences of a culture. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. The strategies of the devil are all around us. It's the world, it's the flesh, and it's the devil. How do you fight off? And, and the thing is, you can't help but breathe it because it's in the air. It's everywhere. So you've got to make sure you're rooted in the Word of God. You've got to make time in your life to put the Word of God in you, in your mind, and in your heart. Now, let's make some observations about Jephthah. Because he was foolish, and he had a flash of faithfulness. All right? Here's number one. Uh, Jephthah, as we've already seen, was foolish in his choice of friends. So when they made him leave, he goes to Tob, and what does he do? Worthless men gather around him. So the first thing he does is he, um, he gets around the men that are described in Psalm 1, verse 1. One of, the, one of the, the key moments in a man's life is when you decide you're going to break from the wrong kind of friends. Um, 1 Corinthians, somewhere, maybe 15, says bad company corrupts good morals. I remember reading the testimony of a gentleman who, even before he came to Christ, as the Lord was leading, and the Lord leads us before we come to the Lord, but he was, he was in college, and all he, he was just a party guy. That's all he was. He was just a party guy and was flunking out and started the new semester, and he had to get so many A's to stay in school. Anyway, he took a course, and he was fascinated, read the book, fascinated, and he said, you know what? He said to himself, you know what? I want to pursue this with my life. And if I'm going to pursue this, I'm going to have to get a doctorate, and I'm flunking out of school. So you know what he did? He made some changes. Even before he came to know the Lord, what he did is he left the fraternity, he left those friends, and he buckled down, he moved into another place, and instead of partying, he started studying because he was going to have to pull straight A's to recover from his lousy GPA the first two years, and he did it, but he had to make a break. And there are times you've got to make a break. You just have to do it. Bad company corrupts good morals. They can't continue to influence you. Uh, he was foolish in his friends. Here's the second thing. Uh, when you go back to... Judges 11. And they agree to say, okay, we're going to make you head, but we want you to drive the, the Ammonites out. Beginning with verse 12 of Judges 11, all the way down to verse 28, Jephthah steps up and makes this speech. This guy could make a speech. And this guy makes this speech and this presentation to the Ammonites because the Ammonites are saying, hey, that land you're on, that's our land. And he basically has done some homework and he knows the history and he basically says to them, your claims are worthless. God gave this land to our forefathers. We've been on it for 300 years. You have no claim. Not only that, but when we came out of Egypt... You would not give us assistance. You have no right. You have no say. You have no basis. And he basically cut their argument to shreds. And then he winds up going to war with them. Um, he could talk. He had a lot to say. But here's my second observation. He was foolish in that he had a knowledge of Israel's history. But he, but he lacked wisdom for everyday living. Let me say that again, and I'm going to demonstrate this to you in a minute. He was foolish 
in that he had a knowledge of Israel's history. So if you read that speech, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, he could go through and give them the history of why they were on the land and the Ammonites ought to stay off their land. It was very powerful. So he knew his history, but he didn't have the wisdom for everyday living. And let me, let me show you why I say that. Um, look at verse 29. After he makes his speech, now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. In the Old Testament, what happened is the Spirit of the Lord would come upon these guys, but the Spirit of the Lord would not stay with them. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, when we come to know the Lord, the Spirit, of, the Spirit of the living God lives within us. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have Christ. So the Holy Spirit indwells us, lives within us. But in the Old Testament, He would come upon and He would leave. Okay? So He would come upon them and they would do some heroic things. Now watch this. Now the Spirit of the Lord in 29 came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give me, give the sons of Ammon into my hand, if you give me victory, now watch what he says. Then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Okay? made a vow. Uh, next verse. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Uh, he slaughters them. In verse 33, the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. So he stepped out in faith, trusting in God to give him. He knew God could deliver him, and God delivered him. Okay. Verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Beside her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. This is what you call foolish. Oh, Lord, if you give me this victory, I'll do this for you. It was impulsive, it was irrational, and it was stupid. He, uh, and, and let me tell you something. Why would a guy even say this? Well, this was common practice of the surrounding nations. This was the common surrounding practice of those that were around them. When a victory was given, they would often give a sacrifice, oftentimes a living human sacrifice to whoever their God was. And what's interesting is, when you read the commentators, these guys are split right down the middle, because this is hard. And you've got the guys who say, well, and if you read the rest of the text, um, she says to her father in 37, let this thing be done for me, let me alone for two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Uh, he said, go. He sent her away for two months. She left with her companions, wept on the mountains because of virginity. Um, it goes on in 39. It says she had no relations with a man. It became custom in Israel. Um, at a certain point in church history, commentators started saying, well, he really didn't literally offer as a burnt offering. He kept her a perpetual version virgin, and she didn't marry or have children, and that was the end of his line. That's a lot easier to swallow. But the problem is, when you really go into the text and look at it, it's really hard to reach that conclusion. Now, I will say this. There was a way out because God's not in the human sacrifice. But because he was a man who was not firmly planted in the word of God. Not only did he make a foolish vow, but apparently he followed through with a foolish vow that was about as ungodly as anything a man could ever do. He knew his history, but he didn't know it in such a way that he could apply it, the wisdom of God's word, 
to his daily living. And that's the name of the game, is to take God's Word and apply it to your life. Is it not? I want to give you three verses out of Leviticus that apparently he wasn't aware of because he was not firmly planted by the Word of God. Here's the first one. Leviticus 27, 1 through 8. See, when he says in verse 35, I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. In Leviticus 27, there was actually a legal option that was given to him to redeem the vow and redeem her with a gift of silver. But apparently he wasn't aware of it because he wasn't in the book. Here's another verse. Leviticus 18.21, also Deuteronomy 12.31. God forbids human sacrifice. God is not into human sacrifice. You don't sacrifice your children. In fact, when the men of Israel started doing that, God said, such a thing has never entered into my mind. This is beyond belief that you've gone that far. He wasn't aware of Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6, that basically says any vow that a man makes that results in sin is not binding. But he didn't know the word. He knew a portion of the history. But he didn't take the wisdom of the word and apply it to his daily life. And so what happened? He was influenced by the practices, by the tsunami pressure of the surrounding culture instead of being firmly planted in the Word of God. So he was foolish because he was not a man of the Word. You say, why is he in Hebrews 11? That's a great question. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in passing for one episode of faith, one flashing moment of faith where he trusted God. And once again, Let's take the context of his day. He was living in a time where men had no faith. No faith. And his flash of faith was seen by God and mentioned. That's how bad things were. Last week we talked about Barak, that he had faith. He went into battle, but he wouldn't go into de battle without Deborah. We talked about the fact that uh, we're now having a policy, apparently, where we're going to send young girls into combat. And there's always hidden stuff to this. Apparently, we're hearing something now about a draft down the road, and that would involve young women. Now, I don't know if that, you know, I, I, I'm just reading about this as you are. Who knows? There's always stuff, you know, there's always stuff. This is why you need to read the bill before you sign the bill. But we talked about Barak, and once again, he won't go into battle unless Deborah goes with him, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And she said, hey, you're not going to get the glory. A woman's going to get the glory. In other words, you ought to be ashamed of this, and now we're trumpeting it like we're some kind of advanced civilization sending girls into combat. So we made the point about Barak. Why is he in the Hall of Fame? Well, once again, he lived in a time of no faith. He had weak faith. It was a flash of obedience. That's why he's in there. Here's another guy, weak faith, in the midst of no faith. I want to say something about weak faith. Weak faith is faith that does not know the whole counsel of God. Weak faith is a faith that comes from an individual that is not firmly planted, that doesn't have a root system down deep in the Word of God. And as a result, weak faith easily becomes weird faith. This was weird. And sometimes we see Christians that will do weird things, that will say weird things with great uh, conviction and all this, but it's just weird know this. That's coming out of a weak faith because they are not grounded in this book. And, and see, when you have a leader with weak faith 
who gets weird because he doesn't know the whole counsel of God, what it does, it spreads confusion. So let's go to Titus 2. Because here in Titus 2 is where the Lord wants to take us as we're men who have families, we have children, we have grandchildren, we have wives, and as we're living in a time where every man does what's right in his own eyes, and we have laws being implemented that rip apart God's plan for the family and God's plan for the nation, as we go to Titus 2 and, and, and we're, in these, we're in these difficult times, Note this, Titus 2, verse 2. Older men. How many of you guys are older men? Uh, you don't need to raise your hand. You're older than somebody. Boy, that's profound, isn't it? There's someone in your life, and you're older than they are, and they're looking to you for leadership. It might be kids, it might be grandkids, it might be young men that hang out with you, or you coach. I don't know who it is. Older men are to, be, are to be temperate. You know what that means? It means sober. You're not addicted. Now, here's the thing. We all have our addictions. Because we're all sinners. But what we're learning to do is we're learning to yield the domination of the addiction to the Lordship of Christ. And we do it every hour of our lives. My name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic, but I've been redeemed by Christ. Great man. Takes guts to say that. We got all kinds of, you know, some guys are addicted to cocaine, booze, porn, it's okay, food, hostess Twinkies, I mean, bluebell, greed, money. We've all got our stuff, man. But see, we've got to get sober, or I'm not controlled by stuff. I'm controlled by Christ. It's a process. It's every day. It's every day, walking with him. Right. So older men are to be sober or temperate, dignified. What does that mean? It means you're a sound thinker. It means you're stable. Dignified, sensible. You're sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. When you put all those together, you know what you get? You get a man who is sober. You get a man who is a sound thinker, who has sound judgment. You have a man who is consistent. You have a man who is predictable. You have a man who is serious about life. Let me tell you what else, and I don't have time to break all these down, but you've got a man who has gravitas. Gravitas means you've got gravity. You know what that means? Your feet are on the ground. You're firmly planted by streams of water. Why? Because your delight is in the word of the Lord. You see, that's what stabilizes us. And in a day and an age where things are, it's subjective morality, where the foundations are being destroyed, well, that may be right for you, but that doesn't mean it's right for me. That may be wrong for you, that doesn't mean it's wrong. We go by God's word. And we're firmly grounded, and it doesn't matter what tsunamis or what comes or this. We're just standing firm. And we're following Christ. And Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what you say to your family. You follow me. And maybe not everyone in the family is going to follow Christ, but you follow Christ. You follow him. William Busey, this is his illustration, not mine. But he talks about a father with boys. What is that like? And then he talks about, you've seen uh, these professional water skiers on ESPN at 3 in the morning when you can't sleep. <laughs> at Cypress Gardens or Callaway Gardens in Florida. These guys are unbelievable. Professional water skiers. And they're doing the slalom, and they got the rooster tails, and they're going off ramps, and they're doing backflips, and they're microwaving a cheeseburger, and they're doing all this stuff as they do all this. They're just unbelievable. They're very spectacular. Just everywhere. They're everywhere. They're all over that lake. As they're doing that, what is the guy in the boat doing? 
He's just driving straight. That sucker never veers. He's just driving straight. He's going the same way, the same path. That's all he does. He just drives straight in the same direction. Eugene Peterson had a book on the Christian life called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And Busey says, you know what a father is to his sons? What a father should be? When you got, when you got kids, teenage years, in the 20s, whatever, a lot of times, you know what? They go nuts. They're like water skiers. They're doing rooster tails. They're going off ramps. You don't even know where they are. They were just, oh, he's over here now. He's been doing this. And it's insane what they do. Now, do they need a father who does that? No, what they need is a father who's driving the boat in the same direction, following Christ. And what you do is you pull them through that insanity as you follow Christ. And you show them what a sober, godly man looks like. Even though that's not how you used to be, but that's what you're becoming. That's what he calls us to be. We've all done the ramp thing. We've all done the insane thing. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you, Father. We can't do this without you. We can't do it without your word. We've all had our failures. We've all had our shame. We have all had our foolish days and our dumb moves. We've all done it. But we come to you. Make us into mature men that can influence those around us and pull them through a culture that has lost its mind. Help us to point them to you and to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.